Hi, my loves. I hope you're enjoying the very beginning of your summer. I'm going to keep updating our chapters until the book is done. I think we have about four more chapters after today's installment. So keep listening. Love you. Hope you enjoy. Chapter 21. I have something belonging to you in which our heroes make their way to the thrift house and make the acquaintance of Mrs. Spindletrap. The next morning, the blizzard of the night before had blown itself out. A pale shaft of sunlight illuminated the snowdrift, which was piled high against the blackened wall of a warehouse overlooking a snow-choked alley. The drift reached down to the sill of a broken window. From the window emerged a sooty head. Then a skinny, soot-blackened boy wriggled through and dropped lightly into the drift. Then a smaller figure scrambled out. She had sooty, bedraggled ringlets, which in another lifetime were golden. She was dressed in filthy blue and holding a rabbit under one arm and a battered parasol in the other. A ragged old blanket hung from her shoulders. She was followed by a tall, gawky female figure wearing an ugly straw bonnet with a pencil sticking out of it and a shabby brown cloak. Finally, a fourth figure emerged, wearing a thin jacket, shabby breeches, and an old cloth cap. A scorched piece of cloth was knotted around his neck. All four waded out of the drift and stood in a huddle, shivering and looking around. There was an unnatural hush about the world, as only a heavy fall of snow can bring. Now what are we gonna do? said the prodigy. We have to go to the thrift house and pay a visit to Mrs. Spindletrap, said Prudence. We have to talk about Solly Spoon. I'll take you there, offered Freddy. I think perhaps you've helped enough, said Prudence. We'll manage from now on. Well, might as well. I ain't got no job now. Perhaps Jonas Scurvy will take you back. But I don't want to go back. I want to come with you, please. Let him, said the prodigy. All right, said Prudence grumpily. Listen, I've been thinking, said Solly. Perhaps I should go on my own. Oh, said Prudence. Why? Because, well, you've already gotten into enough trouble because of me. True, but we might as well see it through to the end, said Prudence. Then we can see if it's all worth it. I'm looking forward to seeing you in velvet pantaloons. I's coming with you, Solly, said the prodigy firmly. You need me and Mr. Skippy to hold your hand if you's scared. I'm not scared, said Solly. You was last night, though, wasn't you? Solly thought back to the horrors of the night before, the terrifying ascent of the chimney, his emergence into a hideous black nightmare of bitter winds and stinging snow, then the desperate escape over the slippery rooftops, slithering, feet scrabbling for purchase on the sloping tiles, missed footing, blind stumbling, heart-stopping leaps from one roof to another, getting dizzy, 
clutching onto Prudence for balance and getting a sharp elbow in his stomach, having his hands forcibly pried away from chimney pots, and finally finding out that the prodigy had been lying all along about the last red sweet, which she had long ago eaten herself. Still, he couldn't be too cross with her. She had held his hand throughout, and he mustn't forget she had saved his dear old crumb-catching cloth. And somehow, by some miracle, they had made it down off the rooftops in one piece. Freddy had led the way, of course, skipping around the roofs like a mountain goat, completely indifferent to the appalling weather conditions. After what seemed like a lifetime, they had finally climbed down a steep parapet into a flat roof where there had been a broken skylight. One by one, they lowered themselves down into the chilly black warehouse, which was used to store flour. There, their old clothes awaited them. After changing, they had used Freddy's last match to make a bonfire of the hated clothes that Nanny had dressed them in. The ruined sailor suit, the filthy white dress, and the even filthier green one had gone up in flames to much rejoicing. Once that jolly little ritual was over, there was nothing else to do but wait out the night, huddled under, huddled under piles of scratchy old flour sacks that made them sneeze. Yes, agreed Solly. I was scared then, all right, I admit it. I'm not good at heights. For once, Prudence didn't ta taunt him with bugless. He was grateful for that. Right, said Freddy. Thrift house it is. I know a shortcut through the alleyways. Follow me. He sped off. Does he have to run everywhere, sighed Solly. Shivering, they trudged off in his wake. Thrift house turned out to be a large, gaunt building set back from the main street. There were spikes on the railings and stout bars over the windows. Over the peeling door was a board with Thrift House Orphanage inscribed on it. A bell rope hung to one side. Well, here goes then, said Solly, and he grasped the rope and pulled hard. Harsh jangling sounded from within. After a moment or two, a boy's pale, pinched face peered through the grating. Yes, said the boy, staring. We'd like to see Mrs. Irma Spindletrap, please, said Solly politely. Got a appointment? No. She doesn't usually see folks without an appointment. It's a very important, insisted Solly. We don't mind waiting. What shall I say it's about? It's a private matter. I don't know, muttered the pinch-faced boy. I'm in trouble already. Solly gave the prodigy a nudge. Go on, do it, he muttered. The prodigy raised her dirty little head, smiled her gap-toothed smile, and did the eyelash batting thing. Please, nice boy, she said, adding dimples for good measure. Wait there, said the boy instantly. I'll ask. And he vanished. The prodigy gave a smirk and said, easy. You really are sickening, Rosabella, said Prudence. She stamped her feet. Brr, it's freezing out here. 
I hope he's not long. Nanny'll have discovered we're missing by now. She'll probably send the boys out looking for us. Nervously, they looked up and down the street. The town was now slowly waking up to a white world. A tribe of ragged boys armed with brooms and shovels was already hard at work, shoveling snow and spreading salt and grit. It's Jonah Scurvy I'm more worried about, said Freddy. I, he got a terrible temper on him. If he catches sight of me, I'll be in for it, Larrikins. Just then, much to their relief, there came the sound of bolts and chains being unfastened. Keep Mr. Skippy hidden, Solly muttered to the prodigy. I have a feeling pets might not be welcome. The heavy door creaked open and the pinch-faced boy peered out again. All right, he said. She says she'll see you. They trooped in, stamping the snow from their feet. They found themselves in a dim hall. The walls and floor were made of stone. There were no pictures, no hangings or decorations of any kind. There was a strange, unwholesome smell about the place. Damp, mildew, and the lingering scent of unwashed bodies. A small girl in a drab gray smock was on her hands and knees, scrubbing the floor with the aid of a nearly bald toothbrush and a bucket of filthy water. Nearly done, Alice? asked the pinch-faced boy. No, Plute, said the small girl at the point of bursting into tears. Get a move on then, you, you know what she said. No breakfast till you've done it. Is, is you a maid, little girl? inquired the prodigy. No, sniveled the small girl, just an orphan. Then don't do it, advised the prodigy. Scream, scream until they beg you to stop. She's doing a punishment, said Plute. Mulligan said she had to. He's head monitor. Pushed in the dinner line, didn't you, Alice? <gasps> so she has to clean the floor with a toothbrush? That's terrible gasped Solly. That's nothing. You gets used to it. The orphans does all the work round here, explained Plute. Fact is, we run the place, or the monitors do. Monitors? The big ones. I, I was a monitor yesterday, but I ain't anymore. She made me sleep in the coal hole, cause I, I gived her a tin spoon. I didn't mean it. Nobody said. So what are you now, now that you're a fallen monitor? asked Prudence. Doorman, said Plute gloomily. It's one of the worst jobs. You just stands on your own next to the door all day. No one ever comes. Mrs. Spindletrap don't encourage visitors. I'd sooner be back on kitchen duty. You gets to lick the pot out. Two small boys came hurrying along, carrying trays laden with empty wooden bowls. They stared briefly at the newcomers, then scuttled off along a dark passageway. Somewhere, a door squeaked open, then slammed shut. How many children live here? inquired Prudence. Thirty-four at last count, said Plute. It's very quiet, isn't it? Uh, no talking in the corridors. She's very strict about that, is Miss Spindletrap. 
It's one of the rules. Shh, now, now this is her parlor. He stopped outside a door and gave a gentle tap. Enter, commanded a voice. Plute pushed open the door and in they went. They found themselves in a comfortable room with stuffed chairs, thick rugs, and paneled walls. At one end, there was a well-spread breakfast table. Seated behind it was a sour-faced woman with a tight gray bun. She wore a high-necked black dress. Silver rings glittered on her fingers. Her cold, steely gray eyes swept over them like an icy wind. Well, she demanded, what's this all about? What's so urgent that a pack of urchins needs to disturb a lady at her breakfast? Come along, who is speaking? Me, said Prudence. No, said Solly firmly. After all, it was his spoon. Me. He removed his cap, stepped forward, and gave a polite little bow. How do you do, ma'am, he said. Better with unnecessary interruptions, snapped the good lady. Come on, out with it. I hope you're not expecting charity. I don't take orphans off the street. If you're hoping for free board and lodging, I do not give handouts. No, Solly hastened to explain. Not charity. It's, it's just that I think you may have something that belongs to me, and I was rather hoping... What? Mrs. Spindletrap sat bolt upright. Her hard eyes bored into him. Something belonging to you? Well, yes. Of course, you wouldn't have known that, ma'am. I'm sure you bought it in good faith, but I have something belonging to you? Yes, I think so. It's rather a long story, but when you hear it, I'm sure you'll... A spoon, chipped in Prudence. She'd had enough of Solly's meanderings. She believed in getting straight to the point. A silver spoon. You bought it from a pawn shop last November. You paid 30 shillings for it. It's engraved with the letters V-I-P. It's his inheritance and he'd like it back. Mrs. Spindletrap's jaw dropped open. She was speechless with shock. Never in all her born days had a child spoken to her like this. We can't pay you for it right now, I'm afraid, added Solly. But we will, of course, just as soon as we can. You see, I'm hoping to track down my real parents and... His voice trailed away. Mrs. Spindletrap had risen to her feet. Her mouth was a thin white line. She raised her arm and pointed to the door. Out, she spat. But if I could just explain. Out, coming here with your ludicrous story, trying to cheat me out of my property? Out, before I call the police. But at least you can tell us if you've got it, surely. None of your business. Out, now. Come on, muttered Plute. Best be going, eh? Silently, they turned and filed from the room. Chapter 22 Spoons? Got em coming out her ears. In which the intelligent reader will learn of our hero's cunning plan to remain in Thrift House and mingle with the orphans. 
see, muttered Plute as they walked back along the passageway. I could have told you you wouldn't get nowhere. How do you bear it here? asked Prudence, staring around in disgust. It's, it's like a prison. No choice, said Plute with a sigh. It's either this or begging in the streets. I like begging in the streets, said Prodigy. I was good at it. Everyone ignored her. They had almost reached the hallway. There was no sign of the small scrubbing girl, just a great stretch of wet floor and the sturdy front door. Once they were out, that would be it. There would be no return. Look, said Solly. We can't just leave like this. I refuse to believe this is the end of the line. We've not come all this way to, to just give up, surely. The five of them came to a halt. He's right, said Freddy. He is, agreed the prodigy. I know, said Prudence. Come on, said Plute uncomfortably. Y you gotta go. Y you heard her. What to do, though, mused Prudence, ignoring him. We asked. She refused. We don't even know for sure. She's still got the spoon. Oh, well, she'll have that all right, said Plute. Everyone looked at him. How do you know? asked Solly. She's got a cabinet full of silver. I seen it through the keyhole. She didn't know I seen it, but I did. She takes this key from a box on the mantel, and then she goes to the cabinet, and she throws it open. I tell you, I was fair-blinded. Spoons? Got them coming out her ears. You see, said Solly, we've got to think of a plan. Come on. Come on, what would Bugless do? Prudence reached up, took out her pencil, and began to chew. Who's but began Plute, but the others shushed him. Prudence needed time to think. From somewhere deep within the house, there came the sound of a gong. This was followed by the distant sound of pattering footsteps. Seven o'clock, said Plute. He looked a bit panicky. It, it's breakfast. Can't be late. I gotta go. Don't want to rush you, but... Does Mrs. Spindletrap come out of her parlor much? Inquired Prudence. No, said Plute. Not on cold days, anyways. It's the only room with a fire. The rest of the place is like an icebox. Look, you gotta go. Buckless would refuse to leave, said Prudence suddenly. He'd stick around. He'd befriend a passing orphan and persuade him or her to help him pass himself off as a new boy, and cunningly mingle, listening and watching and keeping a low profile until he saw his opportunity to sneak into old Spindletrap's parlor and make off with a spoon. Everyone thought about this. Larrykins, said Fred, Freddy admiringly. How does she come up with it? It's good said the prodigy. Clever prudence. What's mingling? It's when you join in with the crowd, explained prudence. And nobody's supposed to notice that three strangers have showed up? Are you madly mingling all over the place? Inquired Solly. Why should they care? Said prudence with a shrug. 
As far as they're concerned, we're just some new orphans. Stop looking so dubious. It's a plan, isn't it? Privately, Solly thought the plan horribly vague, but it was all they had. I suppose it might work, he said cautiously, if we could find an orphan to befriend. Plute suddenly found himself the focus of eight eyes. What? he said uneasily. You heard us, said Prudence. We're befriending you. I, I don't know about that, said Plute, backing away. I'm afraid you haven't got any say in the matter. We need a sympathetic orphan on our side, and you're it. You're going to help us steal Solly's spoon. You're crazy, said Plute. Stark raving mad the lot of you. Hey, said Prudence, that's no way to talk about your new friends. I ain't your friend. Yes, you are. Isn't he, Solly? <laughs> yeah, you are, said Solly. Sorry. But, but what if Miss Spindletrap finds out, protested Plute, wringing his hands. You don't know her. She's the very devil when crossed. The prodigy decided to take the matter into her own hands. She took Plute's hand and stared up at him with her big blue eyes. Then she put her rosebud mouth to Plute's rather large left ear. If you'll be our friend, she whispered, I'll tell you a secret. What? said Plute. I got a wabbit under my blanket. Yeah? said Plute enchanted. Let's see. The prodigy twitched her blanket to one side, revealing Mr. Skippy. Ah, oh, look at that. He's called Mr. Skippy, confined, confided the prodigy. He says he likes you. Plute reached out and stroked Mr. Skippy's head. Never had a pet, he said. Not allowed him in here. So that's settled, said Prudence firmly. She stuck her pencil back in her bonnet. All friends... Don't worry, Plute, I'm sure you'll learn to love us. Lead on. Where to? The dining room. We've got to practice mingling, and we don't want to miss breakfast, do we? The dining room was a long, cold hall set with rough wooden tables and benches on which groups of ragged children sat in complete silence. Each clutched a small wooden bowl. Their eyes were fixed hungrily, on a huge copper pot at one end. Several of the smaller children were drooling. Two bigger children, a tall, sullen-looking girl and a big, freckly boy, stood behind the pot, wearing aprons and holding large ladles. Mulligan and Big Rosie, muttered Plute as they sidled through the door, trying to look inconspicuous. Head monitors. On the wall, dominating the room, was a huge ticking clock. The hands had almost reached seven. There was an air of breathless anticipation. So strong was the lure of the clock that nobody even glanced at the newcomers. Plute slid onto a vacant bench and beckoned. Sit here and keep mum, he muttered. If anyone asks, let me do the talking. The clock began to chime. On the first stroke, a freckly boy in the apron removed the lid of the pot. A familiar smell filled the air. 
Solly gave an inward groan. Pottage. There was no mistaking it. Funnily enough, though, he suddenly felt a sharp pang of homesickness. What were Ma and Pa doing now? Had they let the pig move in again? Were the deliveries backing up? He hoped they were all right. The sullen girl pointed sternly with her ladle. Instantly, the children on the table nearest the front shot to their feet and formed a line. The biggest ones were at the front, monitors probably. Alice, the tiny scrubbing girl, was there, waiting meekly at the back. She had clearly learned her lesson. The line shuffled forward, each child receiving a small portion of green slop before scurrying back to the bench and digging in with gusto. The little scene was repeated several times as various tables took their turn. Throughout the whole procedure, nobody spoke. The only sound was the scraping of benches, the shuffling of bare feet, and the desperate scraping of spoons. Finally, it was their turn. As at the given signal, the five of them rose, picking up their bowls, and moved to the front. Who's this? asked the freckly boy with a glare. New kids, Mulligan, said Plute. Miss Spindletrap never said. Well, they only arrived this morning. She says to give them breakfast. The boy gave a shrug and reluctantly dumped a small amount of pottage into their bowls. His eyes watched them as they made their way back to the bench. He's fed up because there ain't so much left in the pot for him to scrape out, muttered Plute. The five of them picked up their spoons and commenced eating the horrible breakfast. Three mouthfuls later, they had finished. Larrikins, said Freddy, happily smacking his lips. That hit the spot. <sighs> you don't ask for much in life, do you, Freddy, said Prudence. Nope, that were a feast, that were. It's an awful place, right enough, but say what you like, the food's good. What you reckon, Solly, enjoy it? I know I did. Solly stared at him in wonderment then shook his head. Pottage was pottage. There was nothing more to say. Chapter 23, Perfect Parents, Interlude 6, in which the intelligent reader is invited to attend a rather grand dinner party hosted by Lord Charles and his grieving wife. A fine meal, Charles, commented Lord Humphrey, sitting back and dabbing his mustache with a napkin. The roast mallard in particular haven't tasted anything so flavorsome since a broiled lion. When I was in the Congo, my compliments to the chef. Oh, yes, ours too, twittered the Hayu sisters, fluttering their ostrich feather fans. A fat, red-faced Sir Channing Pot crisply, and his tiny wife agreed, and so did the Chumpingtons. The meal had indeed been a triumph. Lord Charles signaled to Barnacle, the butler, who stepped forward with more wine. Only Lady Elvira declined. She had been very quiet throughout the evening and had hardly touched her food, "'Go on, darling,' urged her husband. "'Have a little drop. 
It'll do you good. No, thank you, Charles, said her ladyship. I fear I have another of my headaches coming on. She raised tragic eyes to the assembled guests. Forgive me if I am dull company, but it is on evenings like this when we're all happily gathered around a groaning table that my thoughts are drawn to my darling boy. Does he have anything to eat, I wonder? An awkward little silence fell. Everyone present knew the tragedy of Lord Charles and Lady Elvira's only child, who had been stolen as a baby. It tended to put a damper on social occasions. Colonel Chumpington and Sir Channing Pot crisply exchanged guilty glances, both wishing they hadn't had seconds of pudding. Lord Tweezel gave a little cough and said, Still no news, I take it. Afraid not, Trumpty, said Lord Charles heavily. We examine the papers every day, of course, and we've, we're always on the lookout for spoons. Occasionally we see one advertised and go racing off to inspect it, but thus far we've drawn a blank. A tear trickled down Lady Elvira's pale cheek. His little spoon, she murmured. His dear little engraved spoon, which I myself placed between his precious lips. Tragic, sighed Lord Tweezel. The gentlemen rumbled their agreement, and the ladies made soothing noises. Before long, they ran out of appropriate sounds, and another awkward little silence fell. The Heo sisters fluttered their fans. Little Lady Channing Pot crisply knocked over a glass with her elbow and apologized profusely to Barnacle, who mopped up the mess in silence. "'Tell us what you've been doing since your return from foreign parts, Tweezel,' suggested Sir Channing Pot crisply, in an attempt to bring some jollity back to the party. "'I hear you've become interested in the affairs of the town, sitting on the parish council, by all accounts.' "'Indeed,' agreed Lord Tweezel. "'I've taken it upon myself to find out how the money is being spent. Appallingly run these councils. The bod of good works in particular. Fools have no idea how to handle the funds. "'Takes an aristocrat to know the do how to do that,' remarked Colonel Chumpington to loud agreement." Oh, yes, said Lord Tweezel. I shall be making some changes, all right. As a matter of fact, tomorrow morning I intend to pay a surprise call on the lady who runs the local orphanage. Quite frankly, I suspect sharp practice. Amount she charges per head, little tykes must be living on gem and caviar. Or imported broiled lion sticks, eh? Quipped Colonel Chumpington, chuckling. L loud laughter greeted this. <sighs> well, I'm quite sure you'll get to the bottom of it, Lord Tweezel, simpered the tallest Heo sister. I will, agreed his lordship. No flies on me, ma'am. Hopefully none of the lion steaks either, said Colonel Chumpington with a chortle. Hoping for another laugh, he got one, but it wasn't that loud. 
So, said Lord Charles, perhaps the ladies would like to retire to the drawing room. What do you say, my dear? Will you lead the way? But Lady Elvira merely stared into the distance, lips trembling, and murmured, His little spoon. You need more than a spoon to tackle a lion steak, eh, Tweezel? Contributed Colonel Chumpington, desperately milking it for all he was worth. This time no one even tittered. It must be fascinating work sitting on the council, said Lady Channing Pot crisply, clutching at a straw. Do tell us all about it, Lord Tweezel. At this point, Lady Elvira excused herself and went to bed. Okay, guys, that's it for today's installment. We have four more chapters left, and they're going to be good ones. So come back and check again in a few days for the rest of the book. Bye!